0: If you would like to uh, look up 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and then skip down to verses 18 through 20. And that's the passage that I would like to share with you today, thinking through uh, the relationship that Paul had with Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now skipping down to verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Well, let's open in prayer and ask God to teach us through his spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and that it's sharp and it can penetrate into our souls and do the procedures that you need done in our heart. Thank you that you teach us through your spirit, I pray, in faith, knowing that he will do his ministry in our hearts today, helping us think about this more clearly and bringing other passages to mind, whether it's ones that I bring up or whether it's ones that he triggers in other people's thinking. And you will bless us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Five or six years ago, Carolyn and I were on home assignment. We were up in Nebraska, and uh, as part of our weekly routine, we wanted to stay in shape, so we bought a membership to the local Y. And uh, it was right about the beginning of the year, and there were new fitness challenges for everybody's New Year's resolution. And uh, I was swimming uh, at the time and since, And uh, the challenge for that year was during this calendar year, you would get a, a special recognition if you swam the length of the English Channel or the crossing of the English Channel. Well, that's about 21 miles. I thought, well, I could probably swim 21 miles in a full year. I swim maybe several laps a day. That will eventually add up to 21 miles. And so we had these little swimmer icons in the chart at the side of the pool where people would advance their swimmers uh, along the chart throughout the year. And uh, that got me fascinated. Uh, That stuck with me ever since. And whenever I try to set swimming goals for my personal uh, fitness plan, I always measure it by how many crossings of the English Channel I do. And that got me thinking, well, what would it really be like to cross the English Channel? And I started doing some reading online. When you get curious, that's often where you go. And I found out a little bit about crossing the English Channel. Uh, It's about 21 miles across, and the first time anyone successfully swam from England to France was in 1875, a man named Matthew Webb was the first person to do that. So almost 150 years ago was the first time. Since then, there's been over 1,880 swimmers who have made that crossing successfully. The fastest time was made by a man named Trent Grimsey, and he did the crossing in 6 hours 55 minutes. The average crossing time, and these are world-class swimmers, mind you, the average crossing time is 13.5 hours. So he was moving. The youngest person to ever cross was Tom Gregory. He crossed successfully at the tender age of 11 years, 336 days. wasn't even a 12-year-old, and he swam the 21 miles across the channel. The most consecutive crossings was made by a woman whose name was Sarah Thomas. She crossed England, France, England, France, England, 84 miles in one swim. She actually holds the world record for the longest open water swim of any kind, and that's somewhere around 160 miles in one swim. So there's a lot of different people who have done a lot of amazing things. But the story that fascinated me most was from one of the boat pilots who leads the swimmers across the channel. They have to have a a boat that leads them across because it's a big shipping lane and very dangerous. And, you know, you don't want to get stuck out there in the middle and drown or get hit by a, a freighter or anything. But so this boat pilot was talking about a man who came over from Japan. His name was Yoshi. Don't know his surname, but Yoshi was really pumped up for the swim. And so he jumped in the water and he started swimming in circles because he wanted to warm up for the big swim. Think about that. You're going to swim 21 miles, so how many laps do you need to swim? Just go do it. (laughs) That's a lot of extra work for nothing. Well, I want to use this as, as a metaphor to set up the idea of Timothy being charged by Paul to remain on at Ephesus. We have a lot of sayings, we have things like uh, being thrown in the deep end, or swimming with the sharks. Well, I feel like Timothy wasn't thrown in the deep end, he was well prepared, but he was now swimming with the sharks. I did finally do an open water swim while we lived in Australia, but I wasn't swimming with the sharks, I was swimming with the crocodiles. The night before the swim, they get the rangers out there with their spotlights, and they make sure there's no crocodiles. And if you've ever watched a nature show and you see all the wildebeest crossing the rivers in Africa and the crocodile, you think, okay, I don't need to be faster than the crocodile. I just need to be faster than you, right? So we're (laughs) swimming and we're always wondering, oh, wow, this this is crazy. But life is like that. Here at Newton Bible Church, it's like swimming laps in the pool. There's a shallow end, which is safe, There's a deeper end, which is a little more risky. You have lines, you have those uh, plastic things in between the lanes that will keep you on the straight and narrow. You have a line painted on the bottom of the pool to keep you going where you need to go. You have edges to push off. But eventually, you're not at Newton Bible Church. You're out in the really deep water, in the open water, where the sharks are circling. So I'm going to invite you to take a dip with me today. We're going to take a dip in to see what Timothy and Paul's relationship was like and how Timothy was equipped by Paul to serve among this crazy situation that was in Ephesus. So deep stands for Paul's relationship with Timothy was Deep. That's the D in dip. Paul's development of Timothy was intentional. That's the I in dip. And Paul's instruction of Timothy was practical. So we're going to take a dip. We're going to see if we want to nurture each other, if we want to grow each other into better disciples. We need to be deep. We need to be intentional. We need to be practical. So let's begin thinking about this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. My true child in the faith. Paul had a lot of relationships with a lot of people in the New Testament. And he wrote about these relationships in his letters. Timothy was one of those people who was... A true child to him. They had been through many experiences together. They lived life together. One of the th- ways we like to talk about uh, discipleship in Pioneers is life on life. It's not just information being passed on, although that's very important. That's essential. It's living together in community to see how to apply that information. Paul had many relationships, not just with Timothy, Titus, pastor's going to be teaching in, in Titus tonight, apparently, so I don't mean to steal his thunder. But uh, Titus was another one of those people who was a true child in the faith. If you want to quickly look over to Titus 1.4, you'll see that he calls Titus his true child in the faith. So people like Timothy and Titus had this wonderful relationship with Paul, where they worked together, where they lived together, where they ministered together, where they rubbed each other's shoulders day in and day out. He had other relationships. Maybe you would call them seasonal relationships rather than long-term ongoing ones. Like in Philemon, verse 2, he writes a letter to Philemon so that Onesimus can come back home, and he calls Philemon my beloved brother. That's different than a child relationship. That's a peer relationship. He calls Onesimus, in verse 10, my child, and in verse 12, he goes on to call him the child of my very heart. He had these wonderful, personal, deep relationships. If you read Romans chapter 16, where he's signing off to the church in the Romans, look at how many names are listed in that chapter. Names, some of which you've probably heard of, some of which might be new if you, or you've forgotten about if you haven't read the chapter in a while. And just person after person after person and the connection and the depth of the relationship. Paul Did life with people. He built deep relationships. And Timothy was one of these people who was privileged to have that deep relationship with the Apostle Paul. But let's be honest not everything is an ideal relationship. Paul had relationships that may have seemed like they had some great potential. They may have been people who started out well, but people turned on Paul, just like people turn on you and me sometimes. And sometimes it's personal preferences. Other times it's for very important reasons, because they don't have faith. They give up their faith. They're not interested in your faith. They don't want anything to do with what you believe. And that's what happened to some of these people in Ephesus. We read verse 18 through 20. Uh, He is encouraging Timothy to uh, carry out his charge to fight the good fight, but he acknowledges that there are some people who haven't fought the good fight. There are some people who I've invested in, who I've tried to go deep with, who have washed up. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And this isn't just something little, something trivial, something that, oh, I can just look over that and we can still be friends. This is serious, serious problems. He delivered them over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So look, all of our relationships are not going to be ideal. Some of them are going to be really, really painful and difficult with severe consequences. Paul still tried to go deep with all these people, but it didn't just depend On Paul. It doesn't just depend on you. Well, these are the two extremes my beloved, dear child of my heart type person, these people that I'm delivering over to Satan, but there's a whole mess of people in between. One that comes to mind is uh, John Mark. If you want to flip over to Acts chapter 13, you can refresh yourself with the story of John Mark. Uh, This was approximately 50 A.D. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are going on their first missionary journey, and they're recruiting a team to go with them. Uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uh, was on a lot of Paul's journeys. Uh, John Mark was recruited to go on this journey. Uh, In verse 13, 4 and 5, it says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. All right, so they arrive in Cyprus. They're going from town to town from the, the I believe the east end to the west end of the island, having all sorts of uh, uh, evangelism crusades, whatever they, they might've called them back then. And they cross over to the next place in, uh, uh, let me see, uh, there in verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Well, that's really about all the information we have about John Mark leaving them. Commentators speculate, they guess. They look into church history, and there's all sorts of, some seem credible, and all sorts of goofy reasons why Mark, uh, John Mark might have left them. And the ones who really don't like John Mark basically say he was a mama's boy, he missed his mom, and he went home to be with his mama. Well, I don't think the reason is that important, otherwise it probably would have been included by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in my own personal experiences, I have never met with a cross-cultural worker. I think this is literally true that has not said this was not what I signed up for. People come home from their first term and like, wow, what just happened? It's probably not true with, with every person in every organization, but I find that experience is more common than not. People go out with ideals and expectations that they can't even define. Carolyn and I often liken it to marriage counseling. You're in the pastor's office and they're saying, oh, you know, you're going to have these troubles along the way. Yeah, I know other people do, but we're in love. Thanks for warning about this, but we're in love. And months or years in, you think, oh, this is what he was talking about. I should have listened up. Okay, so it's not that the relationship isn't wonderful, it's not that the experience isn't wonderful, it's, it's both and, it's wonderful and it's challenging. It's not good or bad, it's great and it's difficult. And I think John Mark, whatever the reasons were, he had some expectations that he probably couldn't define and this was way different than what he was expecting and so he bailed. And many cross-cultural workers do bail, but most of them go on to have very successful careers. It's not what I signed up for. I was uh, debriefing with a a colleague of mine, someone from Central Asia. I believe they were over from one of those countries that I can't name. And uh, they were saying, oh yeah, things went well. Things went great. Um, Yep, everything's good. I said, wow, you're the first person I've ever heard who hasn't said Or who said, this term went exactly as I expected. Oh, no, we didn't say that. And then they actually opened up and said what they really thought about the term. And yes, of course they had challenges. Yes, of course they had surprises. Yes, of course they had hardships. But God sustained them through them all. And uh, anyway, so John Mark was one of those people in the middle. And uh, why am I telling you about John Mark? Well, because... Two reasons, actually. One is because he actually was reconciled to Paul. You know on the second journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas decided to go, and Barnabas says, let's take John Mark, Uh, the, the chronology that you find in the commentators, probably about a year later, give or take, and they're ready to go, and Barnabas says, let's go. John Mark's on the team again, and Paul says, no, wait a minute, and of course we have to use our imagination. We don't know how the argument really went, but we do know that it was bitter, and they decided to split into two teams. Sometimes I have to help teams split into two teams. Who was right? Who was wrong? I think they were both right. John Mark bailed. He wasn't. Uh, trustworthy for the needs that Paul had. But he also needed to be nurtured, and Barnabas was right, and Barnabas gave him an opportunity. And of course, in Colossians 4.10, Paul writes to the Colossians that Mark is a good person. In his final letter to Timothy, which is probably the final letter he wrote, 2 Timothy 4.11. Let me flip over there. He says, he's talking about different people again who are important to him. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me. Don't worry if your relationships don't stay ideal. Don't worry worry if they're challenging. Don't worry if you have temporary splits as it were because God is in these things And if you continue to follow faithfully, you can be sure that the spiritual nurturing that you've done will not go to waste. There are people who have heard what you said. They may not agree with it at the time. They may have challenges that seem too hard to overcome. But your DNA has been passed on to them. And when I lose a team member and they say, oh, I don't like this organization anymore, I'm going to go over to that organization. It's like, great, blessings on you, my brother. I know what I've invested in you. I know that you'll take that with you, and you'll use that blessing to bless other people. That's how I feel about John Mark. And, you know, we we lose the narrative of John Mark and, and Barnabas, but we do know that John Mark was useful and was partnering with Paul uh, 10 or 15 years later. They were back together, working together. So don't be disheartened when not every relationship that you're trying to develop into a deep, meaningful relationship doesn't go exactly the way that you're hoping it would go. Well, let's talk about Paul's relationship with Timothy. Timothy. And we could pick any one of these characters, but I'm a simple man, and I like to go where it's easy to pick the fruit. And there's a lot of information on Timothy, there's a lot of information on the church plant from the book of Acts, there's the book of Ephesians, there's a lot of stuff that we can think through. So going back over to Acts chapter 14, Paul was on his first missionary journey, and uh, he had been in several cities, and he finally comes to Lystra in Acts 14 8 and we learn uh, from other passages of Scripture that on on second journey that when they met Timothy in Lystra uh, they asked him to join the team but this is the first journey so this is a bit speculative we can't know this for sure but Timothy was raised by a believing mother and a believing grandmother in the town of Lystra and Paul was there and Chances are, even if Timothy didn't see these events with his own eyes, they were the talk of the town. And so he was part of that discipleship movement when the gospel came on the first missionary journey. At at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet and lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul, and as he spoke, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had enough faith to be made well, he said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! and he leapt up and began to walk. And the crowd saw what Paul had done, and then this crazy thing happens where they think they're Greek gods and try to worship them. But no, it's the power of Christ being manifested, uh, validating Paul's message as the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, you know, things get out of hand, and the Jews are against him, and Uh, different people in the towns along the way are against him. And then going down to verse 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and now they're in Lystra, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Timothy might have been standing around in that crowd. I don't know. But if he wasn't, he sure heard about it. The next day, they went away with Barnabas to Derbe. So Timothy is a believer, he's not yet on Paul's team, but he's aware of Paul's ministry, he's uh, being nurtured in a family of faith, that in turn is being instructed by the Apostle Paul, seeing these amazing things that God is doing to validate their message, so a year later, we're now on the heels of John Mark's schism, Paul and Barnabas, whew, can't talk to each other apparently, for a while. They go their separate ways, and Paul comes back to Lystra. So flip over there to Acts 16. Paul came also to Derby in verse 1 and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So, Timothy joins the team and they immediately start preaching from city to city. Timothy's going from one city to the next city to the next city. He's learning by doing. As you read through the account of Acts, you'll see there are times when Paul sent Timothy on ahead. He could trust Timothy. Timothy had been tested, Timothy had been uh, approved, and he could trust Timothy and others to go and make the way in the next city. Or there were times that Timothy was left behind while Paul went on ahead. So it didn't matter so much that they were together 24-7. What mattered is they had this bond where where he was building into Timothy's life. A trust was built. A rapport was built. Uh, They were able to share tasks. They were able to divide tasks. They were able to come and go and join together and blend in lots of different ways. They had all these shared experiences. I want to suggest to you that there's a myth going around that says... If you have enough quality time, you don't need quantity time, okay? I I don't get a lot of time with my kids, but the little bit that I do is, is quality time. I want to burst that bubble and say that there is no quality time without quantity. Now just because you have a lot of quantity doesn't necessarily mean it is quality. But I submit to you today to really wrestle. If you're not spending lots of time, you're not really having the chance to nurture quality. And I know God does things in in crazy ways. But in general, if you're not spending time with people, you're not going to have the quality that builds these deep relationships. So Paul went deep. He went deep with a lot of people. Some were successful, some ended very poorly, some in between. Timothy was one of those people that he built that rapport with, that trust, and they could trust each other, work together, be a blessing to each other. So he went deep. The next thing is I. Paul's development of Timothy was intentional. In Acts chapter 20... Timothy has already been sent on ahead of Paul. Paul's going to catch up with him later. But uh, Paul says his farewell to the Ephesians. They had just spent several years in Ephesus. And we're going to come back to this Ephesus story again and again. uh, In um, verse 29 of chapter 20. In his farewell speech, he offers them this encouragement. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Oh, thanks, Paul. I I feel really warm and fuzzy now. So Paul knew something. He knew that Ephesus was a place where there was a lot of wolves, in my metaphor, swimming with the sharks. doesn't matter what the wild animals are. They're highly dangerous. And he knows they're there, and he knows they're going to come out, and he knows they're going to attack and so when he tells Timothy, I left you in Ephesus for this reason, he wasn't fooling around. He was very intentional in how he helped Timothy develop and continue to develop. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. Verse 3, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. There was a lot of funky stuff going on in Ephesus. And skipping down to the final verses of the chapter, Hymenaeus and Alexander suffered shipwreck. This is serious business. In the past 20 years or so, when I've read about Hebrew poetry and the Genesis account, a lot of uh, Bible scholars like to talk about the sea as being a symbol of chaos and terror in the Hebrew culture. Um, Paul himself was shipwrecked. Whether he was talking from experience or whether he was using this, this concept that these Bible scholars are talking about, he knew what it was like to be shipwrecked. And he said, these gentlemen are shipwrecked in regard to their faith. This is serious business. The Apostle James told us not many of us should become teachers. Why? In chapter 3 verse 1 he says, "Because by becoming teachers you will incur a stricter judgment." Now James was the brother of Jesus. Jesus actually said it a little bit more powerfully and a little bit more challenging. In Matthew 18:6 he says, "If any of you leads one of these little ones astray, you know what would be a better option?" You all know, don't you? Tie a millstone around your neck and cast yourself into the deepest part of the sea. It's scary to be out in the middle of the ocean shipwrecked or with a millstone around your neck. There is nothing that could possibly terrify somebody more. Uh, You may remember the headlines from a couple of weeks ago back in June, the Titan submarine that was going down to explore the wreckage of the Titanic. And they had what was called a a catastrophic implosion. Well, when I swim laps at my pool in Florida, I often swim next to a retired Navy, Navy diver. He's 75 years old. And we were talking about this catastrophic implosion, and he was helping me understand this. The way he talks about it, he says all the diving rules in the Navy are written in somebody's blood. Everything we've learned about deep ocean has been bought with the price of someone's life. So when you're talking about shipwrecks and implosions, you're you're talking about very serious things. There is no hope. There's a few basic principles according to my friend, the Navy diver who's now retired. Deep sea submersible needs to be a cylinder. The titan was a sphere. A deep sea submersible needs to be made of titanium. This one was titanium on the ends with carbon carbon material in the middle. There was no way, according to the known rules, the basic principles of uh, pressure and uh, Structural integrity that this submarine could survive for very long. It made the dive once. They thought they could do it again. Nope, they couldn't do it. Catastrophic implosion happens in one millisecond. That's how long it took for that first breach. Can't even do it. One millisecond, those people were toast. They didn't even know what hit them. It takes 25 milliseconds for your brain to even register something. And it takes 150 milliseconds for you to even begin to start to respond. Shipwreck is a very serious thing. It can happen faster than you can respond to it. That's why Paul was so intentional with developing Timothy. It can happen faster than you can even know what's going on. You have to stick to the basic principles. And in the other swim lane next to my 75-year-old Navy friend is the woman who teaches preschoolers how to swim. And she's laying down the very basic rules. And her most basic rule is the same one that some of you parents are probably telling your children today. Stop wiggling. Stop wiggling in the water. You waste a lot of energy, you waste a lot of emotion, uh, emotion you're not going to go anywhere. Just relax and swim. You have to have the right kind of motion. Keep your head down. I'm swimming laps. I've, these little kids are splashing around, I'm back and forth and back and forth, and I get tired, and I have to remind myself, stop wiggling. Keep my head down, because when my head goes out of the water, I sink. The rest of my body is pushed down in the water when I keep my head up. There's basic rules that you have to go back to over and over and over again. And these basic rules are very simple. Now, they're rich, they're complex, they're deep. You can spend a lifetime studying them, but Paul kind of encapsulates them from time to time. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says this, and I go back to this all the time, maybe not daily, but whenever I'm in a hard crunch, I go back to this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. When I'm discouraged, when I'm feeling beat up, I go back to that simple truth. Jesus Christ gave his life for me. That's as that's simple as stop wiggling. It doesn't get more simple than that. But as soon as you go back to that truth, the equilibrium, the buoyancy is reestablished. Um, one more passage in skipping ahead to chapter 3, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. It doesn't get a lot more crystal clear than this. He who is revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory... The resurrected Jesus Christ, taken up in glory, seated at the right hand of God, come back over and over and over again to these simple truths and stop wiggling. Stop paying attention to myths and speculations and endless genealogies. If you don't, your wiggling can get you so far out to sea where in a millisecond you don't even know what happened. Go back to these basic things. Paul intentionally was developing Timothy. But it wasn't just Paul. Timothy's charge was confirmed by others. He was selected by Paul and Silas. We read this in Acts chapter 16. But he was also well spoken of. There were other people who said, yeah, he's a good guy. He's all right. Yeah, we, we agree. He's, he's good to go. We, we, we back him. On uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 18 This command I entrust to you in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. There were people that had some sort of spiritual authority in Timothy's life who agreed, we know that God has something for you. It wasn't just his decision. It wasn't just Paul and Silas. It was these prophets. In chapter 4, verse 14, Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance and the laying on the hands of the presbytery. The church leadership was involved in helping him, in identifying him, in setting him aside. In chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You need the body around you to intentionally develop. You need the people around you to affirm you, to uh, approve you, to agree that, yes, you're on the right path. Timothy's charge didn't start with, I'm leaving you behind in Ephesus to take on these wild animals. It started town to town with Paul. In Acts 16, he joined the team. They passed through several cities. He saw the doors close in some places. He saw them overcome challenges. He saw them discern God's will. Oh, we're supposed to actually go to Macedonia. All these other doors are closed. Commentators think that maybe he was along to provide logistics. We just don't know. But I believe that whatever his roles were, they developed over time. And this is why I believe it. Because in Acts, when they got to uh, Ephesus... They stayed on there quite a long time. Please go over to Acts chapter 19. Uh, We're going to skip through the story. Uh, Verse 8, he entered the synagogue. He continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But some were hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. Then he withdrew, and he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Timothy was there. Hey, we did three months in the synagogue. Didn't work. We're going to start our new Bible college over here at Tyrannus, and we're going to teach daily for two years. He was there. He was witnessing it. And I think that he was probably given opportunities to teach. It doesn't say this in Scripture, but why might I think that? Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when he's talking about, Timothy, I want you to appoint church leaders, and these are the kind of people you are supposed to appoint. He says, a elder must be able to teach, and an elder needs to be tested or approved. Well, how can you know someone can teach if you haven't seen him teach? And when I lived out in the jungle, I used this method. I took my friend Bernard with me everywhere I went. We would trek from village to village for weeks on end. And the lessons that he heard me teach in our village, he would teach in these other villages. And I learned, okay, he's growing in faith. He's understanding them. He's sharing these truths with other people. And not only did he become then a pastor in our village, he became a pastor to several churches, kind of the lead pastor. They have kind of an elder system out there in the jungle. And I provided opportunity for him to learn, to develop in his giftedness, to be approved. And I believe that's what Paul did with Timothy. Well, Paul went deep. He was intentional, but he was also practical. Timothy was reared in real-time events if you read through chapter 19, and we won't do that this morning, uh, but please go back and read that. It's a fascinating story. Ephesus had the temple of Artemis. That was a crazy religion, um, full of occult practices, full of mythology, full of of magic. Uh, When people started coming to faith, they brought their magic scrolls, and they burned them all, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. So that's 50,000 days' wages, okay? So the occult magic practices was rampant if you have 50,000 days' wages worth of magic spells to burn, and that, of course, wasn't all of them because there was the Temple of Artemis when things started interfering with the economy of the town because people weren't buying enough idols anymore. There was a big riot. Everybody screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, it was just insane. Uh, all these things were happening and actually by this time, By the time the riot occurred, Timothy was sent on to the next place. But when they caught back up, of course, he would have known all the people that Paul was talking about. He would have known where all these events happened. He would have visited them. He would have been uh, able to sense it, uh, experience it vicariously through Paul. There's all these cultic, all these crazy economic, all the civil unrest. All these things are happening, and now Timothy is in that city, to straighten them out so when Paul tells him don't pay attention to myths in verse 1 4 in chapter 1 verse 4 that's exactly what people were paying attention to the myths the genealogies the strange doctrines of these mystery religions in chapter 2 he says pray for government that we can live quiet and peaceful lives and by this the word of God will will flourish Okay. Why would he say that? Because there were riots and because people are going to fly off the handle and people are going to get beat up and the whole town's going to go crazy. When he talks about the roles of women in chapter 2, he's basically saying, don't be like those temple prostitutes. I just came across this idea this week. You know, he, he in in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 2, let me flip over there. He... Uh, Talks about women and, and uh, some of the roles for women. Uh, likewise, I want women not to adorn themselves, or I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly garments. Uh, he goes down and he uses a creation argument. Adam was created before Eve. I hadn't heard this until this week, but I want to study it more. Apparently, in the Artemis mythology, Artemis is Apollo's twin sister. And it was Artemis who was born first, and because she came before Apollo, she was the preeminent being. And therefore, in the Artemis cult, the women had the spiritual power and they were calling the shots. And if you read the story of what was going on in Ephesus, it was crazy. If you do any historical reading, it was even crazier. And so Paul is talking about real time, real events. You need to be the husband of one wife in chapter 3. You compare that with instructions throughout Timothy. Why? Because these teachers are going into homes and captivating weak women led on by various impulses. So these were the immoral practices that were going on in in the town, and If you're going to be in church, if you're going to set up a healthy church, you have to know what it means to be a faithful husband, not one of these people who lives that way. Don't be a lover of money. This was a commercial center. People were using religion to get rich, whether it was the cult of Artemis or coming to preach Christ. And and Paul says godliness actually is a means of great gain if accompanied by contentment. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and we see all sorts of evil working out with these people, causing riots because their mystery religion, pagan, idol-making businesses are at risk. And so all these things were very practical. Well, it was practical, but it was also kind of general, Paul says, you need to be the husband of one wife. You need to be able to teach. You need to be temperate. You need to be prudent. You need to be respectable. You need to be hospitable. You can't be addicted to wine. You can't be someone who's easily uh, getting into fights. You have to be gentle. You have to be peaceful. Well, that's kind of general. Those are general things that are true in all cultures. But he doesn't really say, even though he's addressing the real issues in Ephesus, he's not saying how. And I think the reason is because cultures all around the world are different. We have one interpretation of Scripture, but we have many, many applications. And so, yes, what does it look like to be the husband of one wife here in Newton, Kansas? Well, that looks different than in the jungle. You're not going to come to me and say, you know, Dan, I'm having trouble because my uncles can't come up with the bride price for this girl I really want to marry, so I'm going to marry this other girl in two weeks. You're not going to ask me that question. But I need to be able to answer that. And if Paul spent all his time, what do you do with bride prices? What do you do with uncles arranging marriages? That wouldn't be very applicable to a lot of people. But when he says you need to be the husband of one wife, then that makes sense. And through nurturing each other, through our experiences, through discipling one another, we have practical insights. What does that look like in our culture? What does it love, look like to be free from the love of money? What does it look like to be free from addictions? You know, Paul only mentions wine, but there's a lot more addictions going around today that are plaguing our society. It's all a very practical experience. Well, let's, let's wrap up. I have a million more things that I want to talk about. But we'll kind of wrap up. Paul's experience in Ephesus, in 1 Corinthians, he said, I fought with wild beasts. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, God delivered me from the mouth of a lion. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10, he's talking about his experience in Ephesus. He says, I despaired of life. That's what a rough place Ephesus was. And Paul is leaving Timothy there to tend to all these things because they went deep, because he was intentional, because it was practical. Some of you are maybe getting in your car tomorrow and driving off to whichever town your university is in. You're going to be swimming with some sharks. Some of you are going back into the workplace. You're swimming with the sharks. I may be going to some place in southeast Asia where there's idols and temples all over the place. I'm going to be swimming with the sharks. We need each other and we need to be deep, we need to be intentional and we need to be practical. Before we close with our final song let me ask you a few questions by way of application. There may be something that the Spirit's already nudging you to do and that's fine. Please listen. That's his job, not mine. But I would like to ask you to consider, identify in your mind just now one or two people that you would like to be more intentional with. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my friend Mike after church, he'd been coming to our Tuesday night Bible study for a couple of weeks, he had done a stint with Seventh-day Adventists, he'd done a stint with Methodists, he'd done a stint with Jehovah's Witness, and he was looking for the truth, and boy... He wanted to find the truth, and I, our study group was shutting down for the summer. And he was a few steps ahead of me, going out of church. And I thought, well, I'll just wait till Tuesday. I, I, I want to invite him over because I know he's got a lot of questions, and I know he's been a little bit frustrated not being able to find it. But maybe with some one-on-one study, we can get him where he needs to go. And I thought, ah, I'll wait till Tuesday. But then I just didn't feel right, and I said, no, I need to talk to him now. So I. Yeah, Mike, and I ran up and I caught up to him. I said, hey, do you want to come over to our house on Tuesday nights when the group stops for the summary? He says, yeah, I'll do that. Well, a few weeks later, he says, Dan, you know, until you came up and called me, I had made the decision. I was done. I quit. I can't figure this out. This is the last straw. I'm never coming back. And if I hadn't have gone up there and said, hey, if I had waited till Tuesday, it would have been too late. He'd have been out of my life. And I'm proud that God saved his soul and he was baptized last Sunday as we were speaking up in Nebraska. No, he wasn't in Nebraska. He was down in Florida. Who are one or two people that you want to be intentional with? The other question is, maybe you're on the Timothy side of the spectrum right now. That's great. I'm still looking for mentors. I'm still looking for people to develop me. Nothing wrong with that. Don't be embarrassed of that. Who will you go to to ask them to be intentional with developing you? Well, whatever you feel you must do, please do it. But at least consider these two questions that I've asked of you. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, as we said, it's powerful. And uh, maybe I'm not so powerful, Maybe I didn't do such a good job. Maybe my mouth is dry and cottony, but your spirit takes your word and it doesn't return void. And so we ask that the applications that you have for us, we would follow through. We don't want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. Make us doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen.